Thank you for joining us for our fifth and final episode of Any Positive Change. I'm Linda Wong, the host of this podcast and the medical director of the Hepatitis C and Drug User Health Center of Excellence, part of CEI, the New York State Clinical Education Initiative. CEI has three other centers of excellence, which focus on providing education around HIV primary care and prevention and sexual health. And in the coming days, we will be launching a new podcast called Conversations with CEI to highlight these topics in addition to hepatitis C and drug user health. For this last episode of Any Positive Change, I am especially excited to have a guest host, Dr. Margie Urban, an infectious diseases physician at the University of Rochester and a leading expert on sexual health clinical education, who was also a previous guest on our show. I'll turn it over to you, Margie. Thanks so much, Linda. I'm really very, very honored to be the guest host for this final episode of the podcast and really pleased to bring to you a conversation that I had with Dr. Sandy Springer from Yale University. Uh, We spoke in mid-October and Dr. Springer is a well-known researcher in the field of drug user health and especially interested in the intersection of infectious diseases and drug user health. A few weeks after we recorded the episode, the CDC released some new figures regarding overdose deaths in the United States. For the first time, overdose deaths had exceeded 100,000 in a 12-month period. And as you might expect, opioid overdoses, including those from fentanyl, accounted for the vast majority of these deaths, actually over 75%. But deaths due to stimulants like methamphetamines and cocaine also were noted to increase. This report followed a similar report issued in July by CDC that highlighted the overlap of the ongoing overdose epidemic and the COVID-19 pandemic and concluded that the combination of COVID and overdose deaths was likely responsible for much of the dramatic decline in life expectancy seen in 2020. It was actually the largest one-year drop in life expectancy since World War II. So these are sobering statistics and highlight how much work still needs to be done to improve health outcomes for those who are using drugs. So with that, let's join the conversation that I had with Dr. Springer. And before starting, I just wanted to give you a little bit of background. Dr. Sandra Springer is in the Infectious Diseases Division at Yale University. So she's speaking to us today from New Haven, Connecticut. And there she is also the director of the Infectious Disease Clinic at the Newington site of the VA Connecticut Healthcare System, where she works with veterans who are living with HIV. She's done a great deal of research in her career and it has largely focused on improving treatment and treatment outcomes for those living with HIV, and especially those uh, who also have substance use disorder. So it wouldn't be surprising then to know that Dr. Springer is board certified in both infectious diseases and addiction medicine, um, which is not really typical of infectious disease physicians. I am also an infectious disease physician, and I I think you might be the only person I know who's who's dual certified that way. So um, before we get more into detail, um, I can see that this has been a field that's close to your heart for your whole career. So how is it that you ended up focusing on these two areas. 
Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me here today. It's such an important uh, subject to discuss. And I um, have been doing this uh, since I can remember because of my strong interest in vulnerable populations and those who have used drugs in the Northeast, our HIV um, epidemic in the early 80s, um, late 80s and early 90s was really being driven among individuals who were using drugs, injecting um, heroin as well as uh, cocaine, and also among heterosexual uh, women, predominantly from uh, backgrounds uh, that were traditionally already stigmatized, um, including those who might have had uh, incarceration histories, those who were um, homeless uh, um, and had significant inequities in health. Uh, so I've always been kind of just drawn to that population. And when I went into internal medicine, I always had an interest in HIV and how I could um, intersect my interest in substance use as, as well as HIV. And if you remember, infectious disease doctors were not the ones that were really primarily treating individuals with HIV early on. It was primary care doctors, uh, maybe some dermatologists. Uh, and so I was actually exposed to an area at Yale where a lot of primary care doctors were treating patients with HIV, but also there were others like Dr. Jerry Friedland, who many of you may know, really started his career early on among people who use drugs and became an infectious disease expert in one of the renowned areas of, of HIV and AIDS. So I um, ended up choosing the fellowship program in infectious disease because I saw there were others that were doing something similar and um, I was able to meld those two areas. I was um, always considered a little bit of an odd duck in an infectious disease, I think. I wasn't the traditional lab-based person and I thought it was necessary that we integrate um, infectious disease prevention and treatment with addiction. Um, care because that's how we treat people. We treat the whole person, especially uh, those who treat HIV, know that that's the best way to treat somebody. And so I, I continued that work clinically as well as um, devoted have devoted my research career um, at that intersection. So I, I've, I've looked at a, a number of your research papers and some uh, presentations that you've given. And it seems that in recent times, and actually even over time, a good deal of your work has looked at those coming out of criminal justice settings and how to um, improve care after those periods of incarceration. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, I actually was an infectious disease fellow working in uh, the, the some of the prisons and jails in Connecticut, um, one of which was where there's only one women's state um, facility that houses uh, is, is basically a jail as well as a prison. And then I was also in some of the men's facilities, um, just routine HIV infectious disease care. And one of the things I noticed, um, which we are very well aware now, was that um, many individuals um, were that were in the prison and jail system were young um, Black men and women uh, or Latinx men and women. Um, who had several comorbidities uh, that may have been HIV, but could have also included uh, substance use disorder, mental illness, and other 
um, issues. And then although I, we could do a very good job of taking care of their HIV or other infectious diseases while they were in the prison and jail system, that soon after release, uh, they had a lack of ability to really stay in care and that substance use kind of undermined that treatment. But also there was a whole host of other issues, including, as we know, homelessness, mental illness, uh, lack of medical insurance, a lot of issues that were interfering with their ability to care for individuals. And uh, so I, uh, my first real research project as a, an infectious disease person, an infectious disease fellow was, well, let's see, how can we better integrate that? And it happened to be right around when the FDA approved uh, the first treatment that um, non-substance use uh, clinics could use, which is buprenorphine to treat opioid use disorder. So that's when I got wavered and uh, uh, DEA waiver, and I integrated buprenorphine in my clinic at Yale, as well as um, developed a research project, which was uh, asking people when they were released from prison and jail, if they had opioid use disorder, would they like to, to um, try buprenorphine um, integrated with their HIV care? And that's uh, kind of what led me down the path I'm on. And sure enough, it did show that if you treated their underlying opioid use disorder, you improved not only their opioid outcomes, but also their HIV care. We know we incarcerate more individuals than any other uh, country. And um, it's really been fueled by what we used to call a war on drugs. So there's quite a few people who are incarcerated with substance use disorders and the number one cause of death unfortunately, of all individuals who are released from prison and jail is overdose. So it's a completely preventable disease, but it also can interfere, um, their ongoing substance use can interfere with their ability to stay in other medical care, which can interfere with their ability to adhere to their antiretroviral therapy. So it's a two-edged sword. So if you can treat their substance use disorder um, with uh, potentially HIV prevention treatment services, you can take care of two diseases at the same time, I think. And it looks like uh, there's now a number of papers that have shown that, right, with uh, different types of treatments. It seems like most of the medical treatments do work to treat substance use disorder and then improved outcomes with HIV, but we we don't always do that. <laughs> so I guess that's the, um, that's the crux of it is how, how do we translate that pretty clear-cut research, it seems, into actual implementation in a, in a broader way, I guess. I don't know if you have thoughts about that. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. And that's basically the, the ultimate issue is that uh, they work. So there's evidence-based interventions. That means there's substantial amount of evidence that medication treatment for opioid use disorder, whether it's buprenorphine, extended release naltrexone, known as Vivitrol, or methadone, and methadone having the longest history, reduce opioid craving, reduce return to use, regardless of how long you've had forced abstinence, reduces the craving and use, and reduces death. It's one of the most amazing treatments that we have available. And we know that Integrating, as we know from Ryan White Care Programs, when you could provide wraparound services for an individual who has HIV, who might have substance use disorders or whatever, if you can provide those services on-site integrated, they also do better. 
We know that individuals who are at higher risk for both of those diseases, like those coming out of the justice system um, who might have HIV or substance use disorders, do better when they get those services. But why is it that we don't do it? Why is it when patients are admitted to the hospital? Reachable moment. Could have start opioid use disorder, substance use disorder treatment or prevention, plus HIV testing and treatment. Why don't we do it? Those are all evidence-based interventions. The issue is, um, as you know, the predominant reason is stigma. And it's not just stigma um, within the community, it's stigma within our own profession. And we've been entrenched with this idea that as your hat is one thing, infectious disease, maybe the other hat goes to a substance use disorder provider, and there you go. But we know that other diseases do better when you talk about them uh, and treat them together. It's not rocket science. What it is, is is it's a particular issue related to substance use that um, unfortunately is pervasive across everywhere, that uh, substance use is a moral failing. And it's not, it's a medical disease, just like any other disease that needs to be taught that way from students in every clinical discipline, from nursing to medical school, to physician assistant school. And there has to be a top-down approach that if the people above are saying, this is something that we need to do, then everyone should come on board. It's not just me saying this, there's large institutions saying this, the World Health Organization, the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, American Society of Addiction Medicine, even Infectious Disease Society of America, our group has this working group that's saying we need to do better, we need to integrate care. So it's not just uh, lip service, as you said, there's evidence that supports that people are more likely to stay in care if it's integrated and have these better outcomes. But the issues are, is that there's gotta be a will and there's gotta be an interest. And if we feel comfortable as doctors or clinicians taking care of a bloodstream infection or of diabetes or high blood pressure, we need to have the same need to uh, recognize substance use. So diagnose, screen, diagnose, and treat it just like we would anything else. Um, and that is the biggest obstacle. I've been interested in this for a long time. And it's still novel to talk about this, which it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be novel. But uh yeah, it's it's a it's got to be indoctrinated. It's got to be taught. And if it's the younger folks, and then someone's telling the older folks who haven't been doing it to do it, <laughs> you know, that's that's what we need to do. So it does seem like maybe there's a little bit of momentum um, because a, a number of those organizations that you just listed, the, like the National Academies or uh, the ID Society or. Um, a couple of others have come out with sort of position papers detailing what you just listed. And those papers are largely in the last couple of years, I think, but maybe have been a little bit derailed by COVID, which has um, so taken over, you know, for good reason, all of the attention. W- would you say that that's accurate, that there has been some m- momentum toward this? 
Yeah, absolutely. There's been momentum because of our opioid epidemic, uh, more recent opioid epidemic, of course, that is worsening. So it's, um, as you know, upwards of 93, 97,000 uh, Americans have died of overdose in just this past year, which if we remember in 2017 to 2018, there was this supposed reduction in opioid overdoses, which many states actually were not seeing. But around 72,000, now we're upwards of 93, 95,000. And there was a lot of funding, a lot of um, research dollars that were fueling research and community agencies to see a decrease in opioid use. So that's when you started seeing more position papers and more evaluation and more attention. And you're right, 2019, before the COVID pandemic hit, 2018, we were starting to see um, more agencies consider this, including the NIH, they have um, funded multiple projects relating to reduction overdose and communities, justice and adolescents and other and, and populations and including pregnant women. But you're right, COVID has impacted everything. And I think this was not unexpected when we saw COVID hit and when we saw the populations that were more likely to be affected by COVID and it related to inequities of health, including structural racism that um, are pervasive across many of our diseases, including substance use, HIV. You know, sadly this was not new, but a lot more attention was um, importantly driven towards COVID because it is killing more people globally than we have had any particular respiratory virus or other a pathogen um, in our current history um, effect. But there was evidence to support, though, that during the COVID pandemic, that those with substance use disorders uh, were more likely to um, be hospitalized and die um, than those without substance use disorders in a particular Black population. African-American and Black population in the United States was more likely to be affected, and opioid use disorder was the, the largest one. A lot of attention has been now taken away from what should we do um, about all of those other issues, which includes overdose and um, HIV prevention and treatment. And I think we forgot about the United States ending the HIV epidemic plan, which includes that we're supposed to be testing everybody. We're supposed to be offering pre-exposure prophylaxis to those who don't have HIV, antiretroviral therapy that do have that do have HIV, um, so we can reduce the new the number of new infections by. 90% in 2030. And uh, those with substance use disorders have been forgotten in general from that whole EHE plan. And uh, sadly, um, despite overdose deaths going up and our stimulant epidemics fueling new HIV um, and hepatitis C and other infections across the country, we still haven't really seen much uh, change, sadly. Um, and so I think it is partly related to the attention on COVID and, and, and you know getting that under control. But we can't forget about these other um, epidemics that are really affecting our population and not going away. In fact, they're worsening in this country. And COVID could be potentially increasing that because of the issues related to the disease where we're, you know, have to recommend uh, distancing and other things that could isolate individuals affected by substance use and also decrease their likelihood of getting tested and other prevention needs that are, are really important 
for this population. I, I want to circle back a little bit to we had mentioned earlier the tremendous evidence that the medical treatment of opioid use disorder has has been so proven. And that kind of treatment improves HIV outcomes, right? So you have more adherence, you have um, undetectable viral loads, hopefully a normal life expectancy. And I guess the kind of commonplace understanding of that is that probably the effect is an effect on adherence and that maybe that's why the treatment of the opioid use disorder helps the HIV treatment. But I've heard um, that maybe there's more to it than that. If you want to address maybe if there are some other theories about why that treatment helps HIV outcomes. Yeah, so um, the thoughts are, as you said, that treating um, underlying, say, craving for opioids and the other, I forget to, you know, the other substance use disorder that we have effective medication treatments for is alcohol use disorder, which is often forgotten in our population. But if we treat both those substances, and I've done research in both populations with individuals with HIV, um, so those are good goals. And when the studies that we've done um, uh, have shown that if you can dually treat the substance use, so opioid use disorder or alcohol use disorder with medication treatment for those substances with their HIV care, you can achieve those outcomes and maintain their viral suppression. And yes, there is some evidence that you can see the reduction in substance use, and so therefore see the likelihood of that uh, achieving viral suppression through the thoughts of maybe adhering to antiretroviral therapy better. There are some thoughts, though, um, which has spurred on a lot of NIH funding recently in two studies that we're currently doing with colleagues here at Yale School of Medicine looking at could there be some intrinsic benefits of medication treatment for opioid use disorder particularly that could have an innate effect on the uh, the virus itself on HIV such that could some of these forms of medication treatment for opioid use disorder um, reduce inflammation or reduce maybe viral load in itself and in one particular study looking at um, HIV latency we don't know, but there is some smaller study data looking um, at the potential differences in some of these medications that could have an inflammatory uh, response. The three different forms of medication treatment for opioid use disorder are different in how they act at the opioid mu receptor, um, which includes from a pure opioid agonist. Um, like methadone to a partial agonist like uh, buprenorphine to a full antagonist or blocker, naltrexone, that those intrinsic differences could potentially um, explain or affect uh, some of the um, responses of the virus itself, regardless of antiretroviral therapy, that maybe could have some association with that viral suppression when they're duly treated. So those are kind of what we call hypothesis uh, developing grants. Um, and so there's not a comparison group other than maybe um, comparisons between the different forms of treatment. So that data we're looking at now. And other studies are, are actually looking at this as well. So that's that seems like a whole another level of um, of research, like really, really an advance in the in the kind of science that's underpinning 
um, research into these uh, substance use disorders. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah. In, in talking about um, research into the various treatment options, it does seem like there's a trend toward more long-acting medications. I just want to hear your thoughts about that. I mean, that's certainly true in PrEP and HIV therapy itself, and it seems like it's becoming more true in, um, in this area as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great question. And you're right. A lot of research is now um, looking at some of these longer acting formulations of treatment of opioid use disorder on their own. Although they're not being done yet, I think they should be, which are the integration of long acting forms of opioid use disorder and the ART, cabotegravir and lopivirine and um, for PrEP, cabotegravir. But so why is that? So the, the sad truth is that although um, the three forms of medication treatment for opioid use disorder are incredibly effective, and as I said, reduce mortality, I mean, without a doubt, reduce craving, reduce overdose. The sad truth is that only about 40 to 50%, um, and maybe even worse and lower numbers, uh, maintain or retain, as we said, maintain um, on those forms of treatment in the community. I mean, we already have a pretty, what we call the care cascade, as you know, for HIV care. Um, For opioid use disorder, there's a similar care cascade where very few people, as we know, are being um, screened for opioid use disorder and diagnosed. Then once they're diagnosed, even fewer are being offered medication treatment for opioid use disorder, even knowing they have an opioid use disorder. And then it goes down and it's even worse for the the number, like I said, who are staying on treatment. So if you don't stay on treatment, craving can occur at any time, as we know from the incarcerated population, but forced abstinence doesn't work. Craving can occur anytime, could be triggered by a uh, psychosocial event, a stressor, and despite not using for years, could immediately use, and the risk of overdose is even higher for that. So we really want people to not just be started on treatment, we want them to retain on treatment. And so the thoughts are, could a longer acting form of opioid use disorder that maybe lasts a month or lasts in some cases longer could that help people stay in treatment and therefore reduce opioid overdose deaths? And if you were integrating it with other care like HIV and other things, could that improve outcomes? So we only have one formulation, which is extended release naltrexone or Vivitrol, which lasts a month. It's the opioid blocker, long acting form. If you want to hear of naloxone, you know, long acting, um, it treats opioid use disorder and alcohol use disorder. It's really hard to get people on it because if you have an opioid use disorder, you have to abstain from opioids for seven days and then start it. Um, so in the community, it's really difficult to use. And now we have, as of 2018, that's clinically available is an injectable form of buprenorphine called Sublocade, which comes in two doses and is administered also monthly. Uh, So that uh, can be injected subcutaneously in the abdomen. And then the third form of buprenorphine that will be available, we think clinically, is in December of 2021, is another formulation of a long-acting buprenorphine that comes in a weekly or monthly 
dosing regimen that can be administered pretty much anywhere intramuscularly with arm, thigh, buttock, uh, is Brixati or CAM2038. Um, so that's another one that's coming down. And then we do have an implant that a lot of people don't know about that's been available for a long time, an implant of buprenorphine called probufine, uh, which is inserted in the, the skin in last six months. But very few use it because it's harder to find somebody to insert in the skin. So the game changer is, could these long-acting forms of opioid use disorder retain people in treatment and, of course, reduce overdose deaths? And then potentially, if you could combine that with long-acting PrEP or cabotegravir that's going to be available in January, we hope, of 2022, um, those at risk for HIV who might have opioid use disorder injecting opioids, um, you could combine those two long-acting formulations possibly. And then, of course, our long-acting antiretroviral therapy. But no one has done those studies yet, which is interesting. Why? Why hasn't there been a long-acting... Well, first, there hasn't been a long-acting PrEP study among people who inject drugs yet. So again, people who use drugs have been forgotten. So I think um, uh, that is, 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 is research that's really important to do. And as I said, it's not just the... Well, you had said it before in the opening statement of this podcast is it's not just conducting these trials. It's also really implementation, real world data that we need. I, I don't think there's going to be any doubt that long acting prep is going to, you know, uh, be any different in people who inject drugs versus those who don't. I think the issues are how we help people, just like we're talking about with opioid use disorder, educate providers, clinicians, as well as patients in the community about treatment of their opioid use disorder and maybe pre long and pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, we also need to do, how do you actually do it? How do you not only start somebody on these treatments, but retain people? So how are you going to find them again to give them the injections, make sure they're safe? Um, and I think uh, although long-acting formulations are wonderful, I think there's some real-world issues that we all have to, to grapple with, including um, <laughs> the big one is lack of insurance in a lot of areas of this country, many of those that don't have Medicaid, um, and uh, issues regarding transportation uh, and how us thinking about how we can go to them to give them the treatment as opposed to expecting them to come to us. So there's lots of logistical issues that we have to face. Um, but uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, but I don't think, I don't think we need to wait. I think you don't need to wait for that study. I think it's just, you know, there's gotta be a will and figuring it out in everybody's own area, wherever you are, could be just that one champion, that one voice who says, I'm going to do it. And then, you know, you work it out. So it sounds like something like that might be on your list of research that still needs to be done to make the point. Where, where do you think research is going in this area in the next you know, five to 10 years after, after this kind of momentum that you've had? Yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know where it's going because I, I think we need more voices. What I am happy to hear about is I'm hearing more and more young um, clinicians, young people who are coming up about the importance of integrating care, prevention, and treatment, and not having uh, one hat. So 
I'm an ID doctor. I can't treat addiction or I'm an addiction doctor and I can't treat HIV. But I do think where we need to go and what we need to do is we need more real world implementation projects. Uh, we're not going to probably solve the problem of universal health care coverage anytime soon, right? So we have to be able to think outside the box. There's, we have done this in other situations where we've had to figure out how to provide care, how to provide services to those who do not have access to equitable health care. And so thinking um, creatively, thinking outside the box with your departments of public health who, who know how to um, you know, provide testing and treatment services. Uh, and I think, you know, where we leverage our resources. Um, if we're associated with large academic healthcare centers um, who are invested in their community, I think going to those powers that be of saying how you could improve care through in, in integrating screening and treatment while patients are in the hospital and linking with known services in the community, like medication treatment for opioid use disorder, pre-exposure prophylaxis. If we're talking about vaccinations, why not tack on an opioid use disorder diagnostic tool and um, HIV rapid testing uh, with STI testing and, and hepatitis C testing and working with the, 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 the programs that you have locally. Where do I want to go? Where do I want to see things going? I, I, um, I don't think we need another large randomized control trial to kind of evaluate these known interventions. I think what we need is, yes, certainly it would be lovely to find out does long-acting buprenorphine versus long-acting naltrexone combined with pre-exposure prophylaxis improve uptake. That'd be nice. But I think there's something that we could really learn, which is just general, how do you do it? This is it. How do we integrate screening and how do we improve treatment access and equity? And yes, in the meantime, you have to make sure you're um, capturing those individual level outcomes to show that you can do what you're doing, um, which includes maybe HIV, viral suppression, HIV testing, opioid use disorder, overdose. I think we can integrate all those known outcomes but it has to be a shared process with the community and our clinicians and, and trying to keep everybody at the table and try to improve um, equitable access to these prevention and treatment services. And I'd like to see us going in that direction. Um, and then from there, how will that improve public health? I can hear you've been a real champion um, of those sorts of principles of health equity and access to care and stigma reduction, uh, all things that our uh, clinical education initiative, which is the, the grant that is sponsoring this podcast, is pretty devoted to. And our, our role is to train clinicians um, uh, of all different members of the healthcare team about those kinds of principles, you know, in addition to how to treat syphilis or how to treat hepatitis C. Do you have any um, tips for us, I guess, after championing this in your setting of ways to convince the healthcare community to, to assess their own biases and their own stigma about these topics that 
before we can really address that in the community, I think you're absolutely right that we we have to look in our own house. That's a great question. And I unfortunately don't have all the answers because it's messy in that you have to address the stigma and the health inequity that a lot of our populations have been experiencing. And then whether it was COVID that, or um, whatever it is that's brought it about in the healthcare system, wherever people are located and they've seen the health inequity, um, is identifying that substance use disorder is a medical illness and that there are tools to diagnose it and there are tools to treat it. For some cases, it's more difficult, like stimulant use disorder. There is not an effective medication, but there are very effective behavioral programs. But they require a concerted effort across all backgrounds to identify this as this is a clear um, medical disease that we need to um, come together to educate people. And we also have to be willing, just like with other um, medical illnesses, to understand that it's also the patient's choice. So they may not be ready. The person you might've diagnosed, but the person may not be ready (laughs) to uh, be treated. And that is also important to know. And I think the education is ultimately key And then I think really understanding where our communities are uh, and having um, us intersect uh, together to find out what is it that we need to better reach on populations because they're not coming to us necessarily. So don't wait, but how can we use resources within the community who um, might be better suited to um, educate and help bring people um, uh, to services or identify how we can bring services to individuals. We have found when through our National Academy of Sciences um, study that we did last year where we interviewed quite a few programs across the country who were successful or maybe not so successful in integrating care, they all said that they needed a champion. They needed one person who really believed in this, who could bring um, groups together. Uh, And I think if you've seen it, if your community has seen how substance use has affected their their population in the healthcare system, if you can bring those two intersecting things together, and it might be that the situation for a large hospital care could be seeing that individuals are being leaving before they can complete their medical care or being readmitted to the hospital multiple times because their underlying substance use is not being affected, that potentially just bring, t- bring people together through that. We've seen that at our Yale Health System. They've had an a infectious endocarditis working group where they're bringing surgeons and nurses and social workers and psychiatrists and medicine people. And now it's getting funneled up to the head of the hospital that we need to have a, a better system in place uh, for individuals who are affected by substance use disorder to, to improve all of these outcomes. Reachable moment for many prevention efforts. Um, so I don't have a great answer, but not doing anything is not the answer. And I think the other thing is it's messy. It's tricky. Everybody has an opinion about substance people who use drugs. 
And you just have to keep it very clear that there is uh, evidence to support through screening and diagnosing and integrating care that we can improve healthcare outcomes as well as um, other outcomes for this population that could be a benefit for the whole community and the, and the healthcare um, system. I see you're also the director of what is called Instride, right? So I, I thought maybe we could just ask you to describe what that is. We have a team here that I work with that does this kind of intersection of clinical research and prevention. And uh, we have quite a few programs um, that, as you mentioned, evaluate at the intersection of substance use and infectious disease in the criminal justice or justice system in the community and hospitalized patients. And so it, it's we came up with our um, group's name, which is Integrating Substance Use Treatment um, and, and Infectious Disease for Everyone. So basically, the idea of prevention and treatment um, for all. And so it's our, our clinical research lab, but um, we have a website also that we're very keen on ensuring is updated with local community resources. So if somebody were to go to that website, even if they don't want to participate in any of the clinical research that we do, that there's real resources for where you could go for help regarding substance use, HIV prevention, treatment, other services, including um, uh, safe injection, uh, naloxone um, availability, as well as medication treatment for opioid use disorder, where you can get HIV testing, other testing. I'm proud of it in that our, our team, which includes about 21 individuals now, though many are research assistants and many are clinical research nurses and others, that the, our group overall Whenever we're seeing a patient, it's not just, it's not about the research. It's also about how to uh, uh, educate and make sure potential participants, as well as those who consent and want to be in the study, um, have access to services. And we do a lot of other things. It could include helping them find housing, find food, um, if they're uh, experiencing trauma, we work with a lot of different community um, agencies. So I, I'm really proud of our team. They're quite amazing. Um, and it's it just shows that it's not just about the, the research. It's, it's really about how to get these services and give this information to people who need it the most. Mm-hmm. So that's some of the real world implementation that you, you were talking about. Right. Yeah. Well, um, I think that's all I had. I don't know if, if you have any final words you would really like um, people to know. <laughs> well, this is a wonderful podcast and I, not just because you invited me, but I mean, but the fact that you are talking about this subject matter and it's, it's so important. Um, I think my final words would be that there always is a way to improve care for somebody but we know this is not like rocket science or whatever this is we know that if you keep an open mind you're uh always available in in some form whether the person is ready to accept treatment or not that if we're non-punitive open-minded and we use evidence-based interventions we can improve care and it's without a doubt Evidence-based medication treatment for opioid use disorder saves lives. 
HIV testing and treatment and pre-exposure prophylaxis save lives, they work. And so it's really not difficult to think about integrating them. And if you're an addiction psychiatrist or addiction medicine person and doesn't know anything about HIV prevention and treatment, talk to your colleagues who are probably nearby who can do that and you could figure out how to do it. And if you're an infectious disease doctor, clinician, nurse, um, you know, there are, and you don't really feel comfortable about addiction, uh, there are folks probably right nearby who could help you as well as tons of websites. And for anybody who's nervous about prescribing buprenorphine, super easy. It's just probably easier than anything you've ever done. And it's probably one of the most, if not the most rewarding thing I've ever done in medicine is to actually provide treatment to somebody. And uh, if they're actively withdrawing, immediately see their withdrawal symptoms go away to actually seeing them be able to get together with their family and loved ones again and um, take care of themselves. So it's the most, one of the most rewarding aspects of medicine I've ever been involved with. So I would say, if you're thinking about it, that means you should do it. Thanks so much, Sandy. That seems like a really great place to end our discussion. Just do it. You've really issued a call to action for us so that hopefully we can find that champion or maybe even better yet, be that champion that you spoke of. It was a pleasure to speak with you today and um, really wonderful to hear about the depth and breadth of the research that you've been involved with. It sounds like we can anticipate uh, new developments in the future. And I want to especially thank you for showing us the passion that you feel for this community and and for the work that you do. Uh, I certainly felt that, and I'm sure that our listeners can feel that as well. So thank you again for for being part of this. So with that, let me uh, pass the baton back to uh, Dr. Linda Wong, who will do the final sign-off for Any Positive Change. Thank you for listening to Any Positive Change, a drug user health podcast, part of the New York State Clinical Education Initiative. We are funded by the New York State AIDS Institute to provide progressive, continuing medical education for clinicians to enhance their capacity to deliver high-quality healthcare services and to improve patient outcomes. CEI offers free CE-accredited trainings, conferences, clinical technical assistance, and tools on sexual health, HIV primary care and prevention, hepatitis C treatment, and drug user health. You can find more information at ceitraining.org. Please look out for our new podcast, Conversations with CEI, in the coming weeks to learn more about the latest clinical updates in HIV care and prevention, sexual health, and hepatitis C and drug user health. Thank you.